Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Influence as Currency. I'm your host, Pam Druckerman. And unless you've been living under a rock, you understand just how much women have been affected by the pandemic over the past two years. 54 million were knocked out of the workforce in the first year of COVID, yet in this same moment, we've experienced a record number of IPOs from women-run businesses and have had a record number of women in CEO positions. So it's clear that even as we make huge strides forward, it's just not enough. Two weeks ago, I had the blessed opportunity to attend Glamour's Women of the Year event, launched in 1990. This has been a living, breathing, history mapping, the evolution of our power across the worlds of film, politics, sports, activism, and science. Past honorees include game changers from Vice President Kamala Harris, Reese Witherspoon, and Caitlyn Jenner. This year was no different, and Glamour celebrated some true ballers and disruptors who are paving the way forward for women. And today, I have the privilege of being joined by Sam Barry, America's editor of Glamour, and one of this year's award recipients, Robin Arzon. Before we get into things, I want to say a few words about these amazing women sitting with me today who are going to make me feel very bad about myself. I can already see it as I read these bios. Sam is a trailblazer in her own right. As I said, she is the America's editor of Glamour, a new position for her. She joined Connie Nass in 2018 as the editor-in-chief of Glamour, coming from CNN, where she won the first Edward R. Murrow Award for Excellence in Social Media. Under her stewardship, Glamour has grown 57% in audience. Sam, I don't know what you've been doing. (laughs) Now reaching one in eight American women on multi-platforms. She's built a safe space for women to feel represented and heard through Glamour's content, integrated glossy features with more serious subjects like finances, domestic violence, and fertility. More recently, Sam had the honor of interviewing notables like First Lady Dr. Jill Biden and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Girl, you have been busy. Also joining us today is Robin Arzon. Robin is known for so many things, most notably as a spiritual and fitness leader for Peloton to her devoted followers. But she's also a New York Times bestselling author. I told you I was going to feel bad about myself. I already feel bad about myself right now. Coach, mom, just completed the New York City Marathon and Masterclass Instructor. She has a new book coming out in January, Strong Mama, that teaches kids about self-care and movement as medicine. Most recently, as if what I just said wasn't enough, Robin was honored at Glamour's 2021 Women of the Year Awards, where she received the first ever Daring to Disrupt Award presented by Ally. This award recognizes bold women who aren't afraid to embrace change, which Robin will tell us about a little later. As Robin said, when she accepted the award, she likes to make waves and everyone around her is just going to have to learn how to swim. I got to say, I loved when you said that. Love it. Thank you. Okay, so enough of me. Sam, I talked in the intro about Glamour's Women of the Year event. Can you give our listeners a little more background on this, its evolution, why this is such an important event for our audience, for your audience, and quite frankly, for all women? Thank you so much, Pam. It's so lovely to be here. And first of all, Women of the Year is just so central to what Glamour does. And it's so core to our mission, right? Glamour's been around as a title, as a brand since 1939. Its first ever tagline in the 40s was for the girl with a job, which I thought was so, like, think about how progressive that was so many years ago. And Women of the Year has been around for 31 years. And it was the brainchild of Ruth Whitney, this legendary magazine editor who had been at the helm of Glamour for a couple of decades. And she wanted to find a space to truly celebrate and honor and award women. Because let's be very frank, men have been celebrated and honored and awarded for many, many, many years. And she created this beautiful community that started in 1990 and has been going for 
31 years. And when you look back at the community, and I say that word over and over again because that's what Women of the Year is. The class of 2021, I've already got so many messages from them on the magic of that night and how they have all started connecting and talking with each other. But you look back and the magic of Glamour is that it brings women in from all different industries that have been really changing the world, whether that's in the world of politics or science, music. Some of the names you'll have heard before, some of them we shine a spotlight on for the first time. You may not have ever heard them. And we bring them together and we celebrate them with covers and stories, but also that really special night, which is in at the start of November every year. And this year it was really important for us to bring it back to the Rainbow Room because it was where the first ever awards were held and there was this kind of back to New York, New York is reopening vibe that we really wanted to get on board with and our theme was women reshaping the world and I think if you look back at every year, that's what those women do and it's such an amazing group of women every year that we get to honour. Yeah, I mean, it's been everyone from, at the time, Senator Kamala Harris, Megan Rapinoe, Regina King. What is, I mean, first of all, I'm not offended that I haven't, you know, actually been selected (laughs) But I do want to know, what is the secret sauce behind the selection process? Like, how do you even go about narrowing it down and deciding who actually gets accoladed that year? It is months in the making. We start thinking about the next Women of the Year the day we finish. So we have already started thinking about who do we think is going to have a great 2022. And it's a mixture of how we come about it. So some of them are, you know, the public-facing figures that we know are having massive impact. And we brought back this year the advisory board for Women of the Year, which is something that the original editor, Ruth Whitney, had. And it was her cohort of women that included previous winners and also just women at the top of their industry or really interesting. And they help put the names forward for us. And we get together. And honestly, the passion of these women on the names that they want to put forward is phenomenal. The team as well, the team at Glamour is constantly looking out for Women of the Year. And I remember my first year having one of the video team come to me and say, I have just been at something this weekend. And I met a 90 year old woman and her name is Betty Reed Soskin. And you need to give her a Woman of the Year this year. And often the name will, you know, be percolating and we will start what is a pretty intensive research project into that person, into what they're achieved, into what their year has looked like, and also figure out if they make the cut, right? It is a very exclusive, amazing group of women. And there are many women that could be honoured, but those that we choose at the end of the year, I think, feel very special because it is an exclusive group. Okay, so no chance for me. I'm just going to say that. But Robin, can you talk a little bit about what it was like to be honored this year? How did it feel standing up there, getting recognized for your own accomplishments and next to all these amazing women? It honestly felt a little paralyzing. I had no idea what to expect. I received the note, the lovely note from my team that I was invited to this event. And I was like, of course, are you kidding? Glamour, Rainbow Room, sign me up. I would have been there to like bust tables. Like I didn't care how I was there. That's what I was doing. The energy in the room was so palpable and intoxicating. And when you look around and you're like seeing in person people that you admire and respect so much, just casually in attendance, I don't have moments of imposter syndrome much. I'm a pretty confident person, but I did have moments there, you know, talking to Alex Morgan where I was like, am I supposed to be like, did they know that they invited me here? Like, I don't even get it. So I had to take hold of my self-talk before I gave my speech. And I don't write speeches down, and I always speak extemporaneously. And I just had to kind of channel and call on my abuelas, my grandmothers, my tias, my aunts, and be like, give me alignment right now. I need to just speak in my truth and stand in my power in the way that you raised me to do that, even though I am in this intoxicating environment of like literally 
captains of industry. So it was very exciting, (laughs) to say the least. Well, you did great. And we're going to talk about some of your quotes later. But was that quote about making waves like extemporaneous or is that something that you've said? I've said that in classes before. And that's just kind of been a theme for me for the last 18 months. It's been an ethos, I should say. My mom taught me that. I can't take credit. She didn't create the quote, but she did create the ethos. Both of you have incredible stories, actually, of how you ended up where you are today. And you know, I think the secret to women achieving success is being able to pivot and make changes when necessary. So as I've been told, Robin, I'm sitting here with fitness royalty, and her Peloton bike and tread classes, for those of you that don't know, are highly sought after. In fact, I was told if I want to sign up for one of your classes, like, good luck. So I may have to, like, text you after this and see if I can get myself on a bike. But I've heard that a lot of women reaching out to me, knowing that I was going to be interviewing you, said that you saved them during the pandemic with your classes and your inspiration and that you simply made them feel seen at a time when they didn't feel like anyone could reach them. But reading your bio sounds to me like you had to save your own life first. How did you actually get where we are? Did you always want to be in fitness when you were like 13, 14, 15? What did you envision your life would be like? Oh, my God. I was allergic to exercise. If you told me that I needed to stand in line to get picked for, like, kickball, I would have just vomited right there. Like, I was petrified of gym. I was the straight-A student. And I'm a former lawyer, actually. I practiced law for a number of years. So that was my path. I practiced law for almost eight years in New York City. I ended up leading a really divorced existence. So I was working the 80 hours a week. I was making the good money. I was making my parents proud. I was, you know, doing the good Latina thing of, like, get the good job and create the legacy. And I really wasn't very happy. So I was, I decided, how the heck am I going to monetize this running thing? (laughs) How am I going to get paid to sweat? I got to figure this out. But I was not an athlete. And really what catalyzed my journey into this chapter of my life of becoming an athlete was trauma. So I was held up at gunpoint when I was entering my senior year at NYU. And it became a hostage situation in New York City in the East Village at a wine bar when I was casually meeting girlfriends. And I went to therapy. I did all the classic things that you're supposed to check the boxes to feel okay. Then about a year after the hostage incident, I was in the acute stresses of law school. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm about to crumble. Like, is this the way that I'm supposed to feel or it feels like I'm wearing a weight vest at all times? And I started to run it out. I physically started to run out the trauma. And I would have flashes at intersections of, like, stuff that happened that night and realize, oh, my gosh, like, I physically need to run this out. And that was when my life changed. A pair of running shoes literally changed my life. And I started putting myself back together again through movement. So that's where the idea that movement can become medicine became very much like a cornerstone to what I do. And in a typical class, can I ask at this point, what is your inspiration or motivation? What gets you kind of excited? I want to light fires. I want people to have an urgency about their lives. I want folks to have the same urgency I have about my life, knowing I survived being held up. I don't want anyone to have to experience anything remotely related to trauma to have an urgency about their lives, right? And I know that movement is healing. I also know that confidence is a side effect of hustle. I mm. revere the discomfort. I ritualize it. And we package it in something that, you know, is accessible to folks who just click on the Peloton app. And I've seen the way that it's changing people's lives. I mean, from the small stuff, you know, you made my day better, to the big stuff, like I left an abusive relationship. 
I filed for divorce. Like I joke, I taught a Lizzo ride a few years ago. And in that ride, I was like, I want you to be able to get off this ride, Mm -hmm. leave the crappy relationship, hire a publicist and form an LLC. That (laughs) is what I want from you today Full stop. You know, so there are shades of that in literally every single one of my classes. Sam, we got to take a class. I've heard, first of all, Robin, I've been told by others as well that you have amazing taste in music. That's also what makes your classes awesome. What is your hype song? And Sam, I got to know what your hype song is, too. You know, my hype song, even pre the awards, was Megan Thee Stallion's Savage Remix with Beyonce. And my little daughter, Athena, is going to start calling Megan Thee Stallion Auntie Megan because she be playing a lot. <laughs> That's awesome. My hype song at the moment is, you know that song, Nails, Hips, Hair? Oh, Todrick. Like, yes. So good. So good. So much. That one. But I have been, I mean, I've totally been playing Taylor Swift on repeat now because that's just just what I had to do. Like 10 minutes of that song. Also, I've been doing a thing where it's like a 30 minute workout is listening to that song three times. And it's like, (laughs) that's great. I love it. Sam, so you are a trailblazer in your own right. I have to ask, like, as the editor of Glamour, you are reaching one in eight women, as I mentioned, in America. What did you want to be when you grew up? I always wanted to be a journalist. I think like I have this memory of it was 1990 and it was the first time Ireland ever made the World Cup, which was a huge thing. The whole country shut down. And I was eight and I was with my parents and we would all watch this match as the family. And at the end, I would go upstairs with my notebook and I would come back down and I would give them a report on what we all had watched together. And I thought I was a news reporter. So always from the very young age, just storytelling and news and information and journalism was just like hook it to my veins. It was what drove me. I started in radio in Ireland. I spent a couple of years actually in Papua New Guinea for Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Had a little hairy run in with a gun situation myself when I got carjacked and then worked for BBC World News, real hard breaking news environment before coming over to work at CNN. But in every step of the way and why it was an obvious yes for me to come to Glamour is curiosity, new ways of telling story. Stories were just at the center of what I wanted to do and the opportunity to come to a brand like Glamour that had this beautiful history of how it reached women, but maybe was doing it more in a like print-centric world back when I started and be able to take all of my broadcast and radio and social experience and bring it to Glamour just felt like an opportunity I couldn't say no to. But it was very interesting. Anna did my press release and she was like, Sam is fearless. And it kind of followed me around for a long time. And it would- That's Anna Wintour. I'm sorry, Anna about, Wintour, my boss. Sorry, sorry my boss, sorry. Anna Wintour. <laughs> casual. Um, cash, cash. Cash, you know, when somebody says something about you, it kind of ends up following you around from interview to interview. And so this word fearless followed me around. And I laugh because mm. I'm also effing terrified when I do a lot of things. And so taking on the job at Glamour was really scary to me. What was so scary about it? Because I was leaving the world of newsrooms that I was so comfortable in and I had built this massive global social empire at CNN that I was so proud of that was winning all these awards that I was front and center at these big political debates and it was a world that I had, you know, spent my whole career working on and then a little bit scary to come to the world of Condé publishing a world I'd never worked in before to take on a brand that people really care about and be a little bit of a wild card. That scared me. But I love being driven by fear. And Robin talked Mm -hmm. about that a little bit. You know, one of my favorite things and when I talk to women, in particular young women, is to take that fear and make it into something special and help it drive you. Because I'm kind of scared a lot of the time. And a lot of the women, you know, Robin talked about imposter syndrome walking up on stage in Women of the Year. And it's, you know, taking that fear and helping it drive you into doing something, Robin said, uncomfortable. I like the uncomfortable. Let's talk about 
imposter syndrome for a minute. There's an assumption when anyone is doing amazing things or when anyone is leading an industry, you know, doing things that others would perceive as brave is that they don't have fear. And obviously to be brave, you have to have fear. If not, what even defines bravery? I think that's such a great point. You both have referenced it. And I think many would be surprised to hear, Robin, that you have imposter syndrome or that there's anything about you that is less than anything but confident and secure. And Sam, same thing as a leader of a major brand like Glamour. And I'm curious, how do you break through that? How do you face it? What is your general formula? For me, first of all, acknowledging people have imposter syndrome because they live in a world where they're told they're less than. So women have imposter syndrome because they live in a world that they have been conditioned and told they're less than. People of color are much more susceptible to imposter syndrome as well for that very same reason. So first of all, acknowledging the baseline of what you're coming into. Mm -hmm. And then I think simple things can change it. Like I have a terrible habit of being self-deprecating about a lot of things. And what I have said to myself over the years, I can be self-deprecating about my love life. I can be self-deprecating about my cooking skills. I will never be self-deprecating about my professional achievements because you are the first stop for the narrative on how, how good you are out in the world. So that's one of the things. And the other thing is just really simply changed. Like I took the word just out of my emails because you know what? I don't need that qualifier. Or maybe I think... I know what I'm talking about. And when I email you about it, I'm going to be very clear and direct about it. So I think depending on how your imposter syndrome manifests itself, and sometimes in me it was these qualifying languages that I would use in presentations and meetings, and I knew it was detrimental to myself, how can I do little things that change how I present myself to the world? Um, and then celebrating your wins, right? Like, I think we find it hard to celebrate. You know, I often are, I love celebrating colleagues' wins. So I think kind of helping celebrate women or anybody you feel like might be dealing with imposter syndrome can be a real help. Yeah, I think that this, this impression that we should be fearless can actually be quite harmful because... I use fear every day. Like I joke, but not really, that I sprinkle fear on my bowl of oatmeal or in my smoothie every morning. I just, little dash. If there's not something that makes me a little bit like, ooh, that's a primal instinct that I think is very healthy. The paralyzing fear that comes with, you know, imposter syndrome, I tend to smash it with movement, celebrating the tiny victories, as Sam said. And I have a twofold practice, like a lot of it rooted in sports psychology, but one is a mantra-based practice that I developed running, you know, ultra marathons because you're out there for hours and hours and hours and you have nothing but your very loud thoughts. So you can listen to the inner critic or you can listen to the inner advocate. And in order to amplify the volume of the inner advocate, you have to give that little voice some fuel. I am is one of my mantras. Like when I'm running, it's, it's kind of matches mm -hmm. the cadence of footsteps and pedal strokes. And I will literally look myself in the mirror and bang on my chest and call myself and be like, you are a bad bitch. Like, <laughs> till I believe it. Love that. And I encourage folks to create a narrative, like it's a mental movie reel about yourself. You're already in the movie. You're funding it. You're producing it. You're starring in it. You might as well have those three, five, six, seven, ten moments, whether it's like the spelling bee in ninth grade or it's Glamour Women of the Year Award. Let your power posse lift you up and then put yourself in that mental movie. And actually, that's something I do before race day a lot. It'll be specific to training or confidence-building moments, and I'll really try to replay that, that highlight reel. And, I, and sometimes that takes me out of the moments where I'm not feeling so great. You know, that kind of brings me to my next point around female empowerment, what it really means to feel empowered. And the fact that, you know, I'd say both of you in your own way empower 
and inspire, whether you like it or not, whether you went into it for yourself originally, Robin, and or now are doing that for others, inspire and are driving like women everywhere, every single day. I mean, Sam, that's actually like what your job is. And I just spoke in my intro about kind of the bifurcated environment that women are facing today, which is fascinating that we are literally still in it. There are still, what, 23 women now running global 500 businesses, the highest number of women CEOs in the global 500 since Fortune started tracking this data back in 2014. But one in three women are considering leaving the workforce, Mm -hmm. literally, right now, or downshifting their career due to the pandemic. And for every... 100 men promoted to manager level, only 86 women will join them. And the margins get worse after that. And this is 2021. We're about to hit 2022. That's insane, by the way, especially when we know that women are not less than by any means, as we can see by example right here. And I think we often forget how recently women gained equal rights to pay, to play sports. I mean, the fact that this is going on in the WNBA as Mm -hmm. we speak, that they're like literally just starting to get recognized and how we only just elected our first ever women vice president crazy. And then there's backsliding going on in Texas right now with the abortion law, with more states starting to follow. So as I read those stats out loud, and just as three smart women here, why are we even still having this conversation? Like, why are most CEOs still men? Is it just because we're still literally catching up? So long to go. We have 84 days of leave for mothers that we're fighting for in the U.S. You know, women earn less, they invest less. It's only in the last couple of years that some financial institutions have said that they will not IPO a brand unless there is a woman, uh, uh, one woman on the board. <laughs> exactly. Not one right. woman. We have a long way to go. You know, we've done a lot of clamor about the U.S. soccer team fighting for equality. The fact that they keep winning and they're not paid equally, it's just ludicrous. The fight is not over. And I think it's really important for us at Glamour that that fight is not just on the shoulders of women that the men and the allies out in the world are getting on board, but more of them need to continue to fight for what's right. And that is all of the equality that we're talking about, because we are not equal, let's be clear. Like, we are living in a better world than we were, but we are not equal. A big aspect of this is this is obviously not about capabilities. This is clearly about time. It's also about women feeling empowered and knowing that they can go for it. And not being afraid to hit the glass ceiling and kick down the door and make waves, whatever it is, a big part of that, quite frankly, is on us as well. And going back to you, Robin, I was reading a bunch of your quotes. This one is my favorite. For champions, failure is just a new starting line. Love it. And that is true for so many of us right now. So how important is it to you to continue to teach women to empower themselves physically and mentally so they can reach their full potential? And how hard do you think that is just to kind of breakthrough and what is your advice? It's pretty shocking to me how the female body is just constantly debated and how many women aren't in touch with their physical embodiment. I don't think I even had an understanding of living in my body until I laced up for the very first time as a runner. And I didn't call myself a runner for the longest time. And I wasn't willing to speak up for the longest time. And little by little, I went from powerless to powerful and how I perceived it. And The scary thing to me is how women in particular are encouraged both to shrink and then also box themselves in. But what happens when you've outgrown the box that they put you in? What do you do? And for me, a tool, like a tool for smashing ceilings and boxes is movement, is sweat. Not only for our health and all the ways that we, it's like, yeah, drink a glass of water, eat a vegetable, go for a walk. We all know to do that. But I care much more about the mental switch that goes on when someone 
finishes a workout and is like, hell yes, I did that. And then that little glimmer of confidence to go into the boss's office, know your worth, ask for a raise, to sit with your partner and say, these are the boundaries that I'm setting for creating boundaries, higher standards. I joke in my classes, like, we're going to keep our squats low and our standards high, honey, you know? (laughs) And you might consider the workout just a workout. But what if the workout is a container for your power and a platform for your space and not only like your physical embodiment of power, but also your mental healing and your mental acumen? I'm so much smarter after a workout. So what I see happening when someone is able to catalyze can't into can in those little small micro moments where it's like, I just got up and I got on the bike for 10 minutes today and I'm going to call that a win. And like, yes, you should call that a win. And then how are you going to pay that energy forward, right? I love the name of this podcast. I also believe that energy is currency. Mm -hmm. And when we're spending that energy in ways that reinforces our power and reinforces our mental fortitude, that is when we're making those waves. And I want to continue creating space for women to do that. I love how Robin talks about movement and body because women's bodies have been weaponized for decades, centuries. And it's almost like this reclaiming for women of their own body, their own movement, their own choices. And she does it through movement, which is totally powerful if you think about how our bodies have been weaponized and are still continuing to be weaponized at the highest level of politics in the US. As we look to new disruptors and some of the women like Megan Thee Stallion and Amanda Gorman for 2021's Women of the Year, who are the role models for the next generation of women, Sam, if you could pick Glamour's Women of the Year for 2022 right now, you know, for just Robin and I, just, you know, because we're the only ones listening. Can you just— Oh, my gosh. (laughs) No pressure. Give us some of your picks. Uh, I don't know if I would pick people, but I am definitely looking at what people are doing between now and the end of the year. There's some industries in particular I want to lean into. Like in the last two years, some of the winners that we've had have been women that people wouldn't have necessarily known, right? So two years ago, it was the women at Elmhurst Hospital. It was four women from the dean to the cleaning lady who were honored just to represent to us all of the women that are in healthcare across the U.S., because the healthcare system is made up of 66% women. They are the carers. They are the nurses. They are the doctors. They are the ones that are, you know, helping us. So we wanted to honor them. This year was a scientist, Dr. Katie Carrico, who was phenomenal and basically fought for decades, decades, unheralded for mRNA. And I remember calling her and asking her to be a Glamour Woman of the Year. And she said, I don't do makeup. I don't do clothes. I'm not a glamour woman of the year. And I said, it's so much more than your perception of what this is. Let me tell you about the other scientists that have been glamour women of the year. Let me tell you about the women of Elmhurst. She actually went and she talked to her daughter. And it was her daughter that convinced her who, you know, the underachieving family that they are is an Olympic gold rower. And her daughter said to her, very frankly, you need to take this honor because there's going to be little girls out there that read this and want to be scientists. Why I say this, I'm avoiding your question as a true say, politician. I so you're not going to answer the question. I'm not going to answer your question, but what I'm going to tell you is that if you know, if people are listening into this podcast and they have somebody that is in their life that they think is not getting the accolades, that could be a glamour woman of the year, I'm very easy to find on social, very easy to find on email, and you will be surprised how many of those, you know, cold names 
end up being actual women of the year. So if you have somebody you want to put forward, find me. Let me know. Because there are women out there that I'm trying to discover for 2022 and I want to honor. The old dodge. Yeah, no, it's great. (laughs) We hope that everyone reaches out to you immediately with their nominees. And in all seriousness, they should. It's an incredible moment to honor women doing amazing things. Robin, I have to ask just because I read this in your bio and I just I need to know personally if this is true. Is it true that you ran five marathons in five days? Is that true? (laughs) That is true. My mother lives with MS. So I did it to raise money for MS research. It's a point-to-point relay from the Santa Monica Pier to New York City. And my leg was five marathons in five days across Utah. Hilly, beautiful Utah. (laughs) Literally, as someone who's ran one marathon, how did you do that? I mean, that's the mental fortitude, right? My mantra actually during that five marathons in five days that developed from that was forward is a pace. Like there are some days that you're like, I'm killing it. And there are some days where you're like, I'm going to just take one more step. And forward became a pace. And honestly, my mother is my superhero. And having her there to support me, it was like, how dare I not finish this when she's been through so much? Well, you've certainly motivated a mass of women with your quotes. I have one more that I want to put out there. Someone once told me not to bite off more than I could chew. I said I would rather choke on greatness than nibble on mediocrity. I mean, (laughs) it's amazing. I'm obsessed with that, but I don't think it's that. You know when somebody's like, did you, this is your quote, right? You're having imposter syndrome again. You don't even remember saying it. I mean, honestly, that is the most amazing quote. But let me ask you this. What motivates you? You're motivating all these people every single day. What motivates you? This may be a little bit heavy, but I'm spiritual and I feel like I have a connection with my ancestors and my abuelas and folks who have passed. And what motivates me is thinking that everything they did would have been for nothing. I feel like I need to step up in order to make them proud. I want to be a good ancestor. That's amazing, actually. And Sam, what about you? What motivates you? Well, I'm just thinking about the biting off more than you can chew. And my friends have this funny quote that I say, a girl was a friend of hers was like, oh, I don't like eating a lot on dates. And I say, take me out, watch me eat my burger and hear me roar. That's my quote, because that is how my attitude <laughs> to it. just loving life. It's the women in my life. It's the women I meet through Glamour. It is the women I work with like you, Pam, that honestly, they do motivate me. And I think the power of female friendship is just magic. I love it so much. My sisters, my mothers, my friends, my colleagues. It's the women in my life that motivate me. Well, I am certainly motivated by the two of you. I have to say this has actually been like a wonderful moment to spend this kind of quality time. Robin, I feel like this Daring to Disrupt award that you won is certainly going to set quite a bar for all the women that will come after you. And Sam, you continue to do unbelievable work at Glamour. And I think this moment in time is important because there's still a lot of work to do. There's a lot of great women to honor and there's still a lot of great women to become great women. And so thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I want to do run club with the three of us. Let's go I running know. together, right? I mean, that 100. would be great. If forward is to. a pace, I can get on board with that because we're not, <laughs> it's not going to be anything too fast. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I am your host, Pam Druckerman. Talk to you next time. Follow Influences Currency wherever you listen to podcasts for monthly episodes. To hear more from Pam, follow her on LinkedIn. This podcast was produced by Seaplane Armada. It was created by Deirdre Connors, Courtney Verdier, Eric Johnson, Danielle Altolio, Julie Shen, Nico Steele, and Grace Stearns, with creative direction by Nancy Rosenberg and talent outreach and casting by Amanda Miller, Fiona Kellerman, and Greg Tharker.